So why am I concerned about the subject that we're talking about this week? Why am I passionate about this subject? Doctrine matters. There are some doctrines that are like an air filter in a vehicle. They are important, but they are less urgent. There are other doctrines that are more like the fuel in the vehicle. If you replace the gas with liquid nitrogen, you're not going anywhere. You're going to destroy your whole car. It's extremely urgent not to do that. So I recognize there are some doctrines that are more urgent than others. That doesn't mean they're not important. But doctrine matters. And the Apostle Paul made that very clear to Timothy. Doctrine, till I come, give attendance to reading, exhortation, doctrine. Give yourself wholly to them so your profiting may adhere to all. Why does it matter? Because today there are false teachers teaching false doctrine. And many of these false doctrines they're teaching are in areas that matter and that are urgent. There's a lot of teaching out there that is teaching and refuting the whole concept of what salvation is all about. And it's a lot closer home than many of us are aware of. They begin to teach against the idea of Christ's imputed righteousness. They teach against everything. And I've, had, I've talked with numerous of these people where I had one man tell me, Paul, he said, a Christian has no righteousness aside from what he practices himself. Nothing's imputed to him. And I say, if you believe that, you're not going to walk in victory. That is urgent. The surest road to defeat is to believe that my moment-by-moment righteousness is contingent on my moment-by-moment triumphs and failures. We're going to walk in defeat if that's what we believe. And... Why this matters is the devil and teach, the devil is going to come against us constantly, trying to get us to focus on ourselves. And when we understand where our righteousness comes from, as he was saying, where the power comes from, where the transformation comes from, <coughs> what God has done for us through the Word of God, we can overcome those temptations, and those feelings of failure. The Apostle Paul used the Old Testament to prove salvation by grace through faith. And I believe one of the reasons so many teachers today are leading people astray is because they are not grounded in the Bible, and we can disprove them and find assurance in where we are based on the Old Testament. Because the Apostle Paul used the Old Testament to disprove the Jews work salvation. And there is a solid anchoring for our lives when we see the doctrine of the gospel and of justification by grace through faith throughout the whole Bible. But when we don't, the less of that we know throughout the Bible, the more these false teachers can take us for a loop. That is why the covenant God made with Abraham is so important to understand. Abraham had to be absolutely perfectly righteous in order for this to be fulfilled. Was he perfectly righteous in and of himself? The very next chapter, he messes up and goes into Hagar. No, he wasn't. What made him so perfectly righteous that God could stake his very existence on fulfilling this promise through Abraham's righteousness? God imputed righteousness to him. Do you see that simple, simple story from Genesis 15? How that just destroys the whole concept of the teachers who come against the idea of imputed righteousness. And that's only one. That's why I'm passionate about this. Because the word of God grounds us in the truth against false teachers who will seek to derail our Christian lives and get us to flounder and walk in defeat. We're going to look at First and Second Samuel this morning. Why? Well, First and Second Samuel, Peter in Acts chapter three was saying, Samuel and all the prophets that follow after have likewise spoken of these days, the days of Jesus Christ. Peter said Samuel spoke of Christ. The books of First and Second Samuel are about Christ. 
Hannah's prayer. Where is that found? Hannah's prayer. Somebody want to tell me. Hannah, who was a mother of Samuel. Where did she pray and exalt the Lord? 1 Samuel chapter 2 is a record, a record of Hannah's prayer. 2 Samuel. Now, 1 and 2 Samuel are one unit. Originally, like one book. So 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah prays and exalts the Lord. 2 Samuel chapter 22, towards the end of the book of 2 Samuel, David prays a prayer. Hannah's prayer, 1 Samuel 2, the beginning of the books, David's prayer, 2 Samuel 22, toward the end of the second book, are the bookends of these two books. They are what everything else is sandwiched in between. What's going on? Hannah is praying and exalting the Lord for the salvation that he was bringing to Israel. David is praying and thanking and exalting the Lord for the salvation that he brought to Israel. And everything throughout First and Second Samuel <clears throat> is the story of the fulfillment of Hannah's prayer for which David was thanking him in the, other, in the, in the end of the book. If you want to know what First and Second Samuel are all about, Read those prayers. That's what it's all about. Hannah is saying, Lord, thank you for what you've done, though he had not yet done it. But he had set it in motion. So she's saying, you set something in motion. Thank you. This is what you're doing. And First and Second Samuel, from that point on, point by point, gives us a story of God fulfilling those things that Hannah exalted the Lord for. And in the end, David says, Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. And he repeats many of the things that Hannah had prayed for. That's why we call them the bookends. And what they were praying for and thanking the Lord for was the triumph of the king. The triumph of God by setting up a king. <clears throat> These two prayers are not an exact mirror image of each other. But they have many similarities. Hannah exalts the Lord, Yahweh. When you see in your Bible the word Lord in capital letters, you're going to see some places it's called Lord with the first letter capitalized and the rest small. Other places it's Lord in all capital <coughs> letters. If it's all capital letters, that is a translation. They translated it that way instead of Yahweh, which was God's name. Yahweh was, and I'm not going to go into a lot of details, but I could explain to you, uh, Jehovah, if you ask me later if you want to know how the word, why the word Jehovah and Yahweh are the same, coming from the same way. I don't have time to get into that this morning. But Jehovah is also the name for Yahweh. But, lost my train of thought. Um, so those, the, uh, Yahweh is God's covenant name. If you will read when God met Moses at the burning bush, he said, Moses said, if I go to Israel and I tell Israel <clears throat> that you've sent me, and they said, who is he? What is his name? The Lord said, you tell them, I am that I am, or I am the one who is. That is my name. That's who sent you. You will notice if you have a good Bible translation, I am that I am is in all capital letters. Why? It is his name. It is the very essence of his name. I am transcendent. I am above these things. I am the one who is. I am pure being as opposed to us who are human becomings. Because we're always in a, a state of flux, always changing. God never changes. I am stability. I am the one same yesterday today and forever there's no change in me that's the essence of the name yahweh so hannah exalts yahweh in first samuel chapter 2 the god our rock stable rock david exalts our rock in second samuel chapter 22 <clears throat> So Hannah exalts the Lord, Yahweh, God's covenant name, for the salvation that he had brought or was going to bring. She spoke in the past tense, though it had not happened yet. 
because she knew God would fulfill the uh, the um, fulfill what she was praising him for. So she thanked God as if he had already done it. In 2 Samuel 22, David exalts the Lord for having fulfilled the things Hannah had exalted the Lord for in what he was going to fulfill. Let's read the two prayers and compare them. Hannah's prayer, 1 Samuel 2, beginning in verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoiceth in the Lord, mine horn, that means kingly power and authority, mine horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee. Neither is there any rock like our God. Rock like our God. Take note of those uh, words. Talk no more so (coughs) so exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and they that stumbled are girded with strength. They that were full have hired out (coughs) themselves for bread, and they that were hungry ceased, so that the barren hath borne seven, and she that hath many children is waxed feeble. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. He will keep the feet of his saints. Watch that happen in these books. And the wicked shall be silent in darkness. Watch that happen. For by strength shall no man prevail. By the way, that's the title of my message this morning. By strength shall no man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth. And he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Turn to Second Samuel 22, the other bookend. And David spake unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord had delivered him out of the hand of all his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. And he said, the Lord is my rock. Hannah had said, there is no rock like our God. He says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress. He and my deliverer. He keeps the feet of his saints. David saying, yes, you've kept me. The God of my rock in him will I trust. He is my shield. And the horn of my salvation, he exalts the horn of his anointed, Hannah had prayed. He's saying he is the horn of my salvation. I am his anointed. My high tower and my refuge, my savior, thou savest me from violence. I will call on the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. When the waves of death compassed me, the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about. The snares of death prevented me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God. And he did hear my voice out of his temple. And my cry did enter into his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven moved and shook because he was wroth. There went up a smoke out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down. And darkness was under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub. And did fly, and he was seen upon the wings of the wind. And he made darkness pavilions round about him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. Through the brightness before him were coals of fire kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and discomfited them. And the channels of the sea appeared. The foundations of the world were discovered. At the rebuking of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils, he sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from them that hated me, for they were too strong for me. They prevented me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth also into a large place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. Listen to these next words. The Lord rewarded me. According to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, hath he recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me. And as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also upright before him and have kept myself from mine iniquity. Therefore, the Lord hath recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his eyesight. With the merciful, 
thou wilt show thyself merciful. And with the upright, thou wilt show thyself upright. With the pure, thou wilt show thyself pure. And with the froward, thou wilt show thyself unsavory. Let's pause. Is this an accurate description of David's righteousness? I have not departed from my God. I have kept his way. Is that totally accurate? Or did he actually go in and sin with Bathsheba? What's going on? David was a type of Christ. And he is speaking about his descendant, Christ. Because, and we're going to see tomorrow... How many times, this is also found in Psalm 18. Psalm 18 is almost verbatim what 2 Samuel 22 is. Almost every word is the same. What's going on? David is speaking prophetically about the greater David, Jesus Christ, who qualifies to be the deliverer because he is perfect. And as we're going to see tomorrow, when David wrote about the greater David, Jesus Christ, he used a first-person pronoun referring to himself. Keep that in the back of your mind. That's what's going on here. I, but I really mean the greater David Christ, have kept myself from sin. I have been perfect. I have walked with God. Therefore, I qualify as a deliverer. Does this sound a little bit like the verses in Psalm, 95, in Psalm 45 where it's a prophecy of Christ? We know this is a prophecy of Christ because Hebrews uses it and says it's talking about Christ. Psalm 45, it says, and in thy majesty ride prosperously. All right, ride prosperously, prosper because of truth, because you have truth. And meekness, verse 26 merciful righteousness and thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things thou lovest righteousness and hatest iniquity therefore god thy god hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellow do you see how it's talking about christ when he says because of your perfect righteousness i have done this through you and david saying the same thing because of my righteousness and that my is first person to refer to christ we'll see that tomorrow the new testament writers understood that principle That is why the New Testament would write, would quote from the Psalms and say this was actually about Christ. But when you go back and read it about Christ, uh, read it in Psalms, it's referring to David. Because Christ was a a greater David. We'll expound on that tomorrow. Let's go on, pick up in chapter 20, verse 28. And the afflicted people thou wilt save, but thine eyes are upon the haughty that thou mayest, uh, mayest bring them down. What had Hannah prayed? You exalt the upright and abase the proud david's saying that's what you did your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down for thou art my lamp o lord and the lord will lighten my darkness for by thee i have run through a troop by my god have i leaped over a wall as for god his way is perfect the word of the lord is tried he is a buckler to all them that trust in him for who is god save the lord and who is a rock save our god hannah had said there is no rock like our god now david's reiterating that god is my strength and power and he maketh my way perfect he maketh my feet like hinds feet and setteth me upon my high places he teacheth my hands to war so that a bow of steel is broken by mine arms thou hast (coughs) also given me the shield of thy salvation and thy gentleness hath made me great thou hast enlarged my steps under me so that my feet did not slip I have pursued mine enemies and destroyed them and turned not again until I had consumed them. Note that my feet did not slip. Hannah had said he keeps the feet of his saints. And I have consumed them and wounded them that they could not arise. Yea, they are fallen under my feet for thou hast girded me with strength to battle. Them that rose up against me hast thou subdued under me. Thou hast also given me the neck of mine enemies that I might destroy them that hate me. They looked, but there was none to save even unto the Lord, but he answered them not. Then did I beat them as small as the dust of the earth. I did stamp them as a mire of the street and did spread them abroad. Thou also hast delivered me from the strivings of my people. Thou hast kept me to be the head of the heathen. A people which I knew not shall serve me. Interesting. That's a prophecy of Christ as well. In other places in the Bible. Strangers shall submit themselves unto me. 
As soon as they hear, they shall be obedient unto me. Isaiah. Almost the same words in Isaiah prophesying about Christ. Do you see how what David is saying here, he's talking about the greater Christ, the greater David, who is Christ? Strangers shall fade away, and they shall be afraid out of their close places. The Lord liveth, and blessed be my rock. There's that word rock again. And exalted be the God of the rock of my salvation. It is God that avengeth me, and that bringeth down the people under me, and that bringeth me forth from mine enemies. Thou also hast lifted me up on high above them that rose up against me. Thou hast delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks unto thee, O Lord, among the heathen, and I will sing praises unto thy name. He is the tower of salvation for his king and showeth mercy to his anointed unto David and to his seed forevermore. This is David exalting the Lord for what he did in First and Second Samuel and by setting into emotion, into motion what was going to be fulfilled in the greater David Christ. And as David wrote these things about himself, he was prophetically speaking about Christ being the fulfillment of this prayer. We'll see that more clearly tomorrow. If we wish to understand what is going on in First and Second Samuel, we need to understand that the promise God made with Abraham that we talked about yesterday, when he made that covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, was taking a giant step forward. <coughs> Up until now, those who understood anything about God's plan of redemption understood that it would be fulfilled through Abraham's offspring. We tend to think that it was against God's will for Israel to have a king because of the way God reacted when Israel demanded a king. We think so. But the problem was not a king in and of itself. The problem was not the fact that they had a king. The problem was that Israel wanted a king in their way and in their time and of their choosing. We want a king. We want a man who will be man's answer to man's need. And God gave them the best man has to offer. Saul, head and shoulders above all. All right, you want to meet your own needs to save you from your enemies. I'll give you a man that is better than anybody else you could choose, humanly speaking. And let's see how well that works out for you. You're rejecting me and my plan? I'll let you have yours. See how well humanism works for you. And he gave them the best of humanism. God had always planned on them having a king. You say, what are you saying? Are you sure of that? Well, when they had been wandering in the wilderness... God talked to them about what their king was to be like once he actually had a king. And when God made the covenant with Abraham, one of the promises he made to Abraham was that kings would come from him. So that was promised as a blessing. That's why I say God actually wanted them to have a king at some point. But they got ahead of themselves and said, well, Lord, we're not going to wait on you. Your timing, we're going to have things our way. And meet our needs with our man. And that's who Saul was. And now God was, in First and Second Samuel, establishing a royal bloodline. He was establishing a throne that would give his king, Messiah, <clears throat> the authority to conquer Satan and crush his head. As he had promised Adam and Eve in the garden. Christ had to come to earth as a man. He had to meet Satan as a second Adam. And as a man, Christ had to be a king whose kingdom would overthrow Satan's kingdom. A king had to go against a false king. And look how closely Hannah's prayer mirrors the prayer of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Read Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2, uh, 2 and go to Luke and read Mary's prayer. How she's exalting the Lord. Almost mirror images of each other. Both are prayers just before the king stepped to the throne. The one is prayed as a setting up of the throne was set into motion. Hannah's prayer. The other was prayed just before the royal king, the ultimate king, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, stepped onto that throne. 
and almost verbatim in places, those prayers are the same. God was taking the oath he made with Abraham forward by establishing a royal monarchy. The throne of David was the throne of Christ. Now you're sitting there and you're saying, are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. Why are you sure? Because the Bible says so. The throne of David was the throne of Christ. The throne of David was the royalty that was God's method of bringing deliverance to his people. And that's what 1 and 2 Samuel is all about, was a throne of David and therefore the throne of Christ being established. So, you say, I said because the Bible says so. You're saying, where does the Bible say so? Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. You all understand that to be talking about Christ, right? Yes. <clears throat> the government <clears throat> shall be upon his shoulder. And his name, the one, this child, shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, clearly Christ. Of the increase of his, Christ's government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David. That's why I say, yes, the throne of David was the throne of Christ. That is why Satan tried so hard to overthrow the throne of David in First and Second Samuel. He knew he's overthrow- if he can overthrow David and kill David at the hands of Saul, he gets rid of Christ. And that's what David was up against. There were spiritual realities that were going on here that were much deeper than just David. And David did not always fully understand these spiritual realities. David had no idea what all was at stake when he went up against Goliath. And we're going to see what all was at stake. <clears throat> David was a type of Christ. What happened to David's throne happened to Christ's throne. The people who attacked David's throne were attacking Christ's throne. Whatever was prophesied about David's throne was fulfilled in Christ and in his throne because they were the same throne. We are not David. We better get that clear as we go through First and Second Samuel. We are not David. First and Second Samuel are not written to show us in David a model of a life we are to follow. Yes, he was exemplary in some ways and we can take some lessons from that. I'm not saying none of that can be done. But there is a greater, deeper spiritual significance to what's going on in these books that we shouldn't miss as we learn the minor. There's some minor points in First and Second Samuel. The minor point is David teaches us some lessons that we can follow. The major point is you're not David any more than you are Christ. Just don't miss the major point in the details of the minor points. He was exemplary, and we do well to learn from his example in those areas, but that is not the primary purpose and lesson from the life of David. We are meant to see ourselves in the lives of Israel and Saul. We are all Israel. Israel was a type of all of us today. Saul was the best of human ability. We see the best of our abilities and ability to save ourselves in Saul. But even with the best of human ability, (coughs) Israel and Saul fell short. They rejected David just like we rejected Christ and sent him on the run. And while David was not a type of Christ in all his personal failings and humanity, yet he was a type of Christ in the way God used him to be a savior to his people. You will notice as you read 1 and 2 Samuel that at every step of the way to the throne... The parallels to David's ascension to the throne and Christ's ascension to the throne were striking. And we're going to look at some of those this morning. What David faced at every junction of the road on the step to the throne, Christ faced the same thing on his ascent to the throne. So now let's look a little closer at the parallels of David's life to those in Christ's life. By strength shall no man prevail. God chooses to show deliverance through human weakness. God saved 
Israel through David, a weak man. And Christ left his power, much of his power, and he came in utter human weakness to save us. The goal of David's trials was not to make David strong. I mentioned that earlier in the week. It was to make him weak and dependent on a strength not his own. Christ said, I can do nothing but what I see of my father. He became dependent on the power of the father when he was on earth to deliver us. The seed of deliverance was promised to Adam and Eve. Let's back up. Pre-David. Satan moved to destroy the promised seed through giants in Genesis chapter 6. I don't know what those giants were a product of. I know what people say on both sides. I'm familiar with the debate on that. It's not necessary to know that in order to learn this. In Genesis 12, we find God calling Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees. God promised the land of Canaan to Abraham. Where in the Bible do we see giants? Genesis 6, before the flood, the land of Canaan. What's going on? God promised a seed of deliverance through Adam and Eve's descendants. Satan set out to destroy those descendants. Whatever, I don't know who these giants were. But you will find every place in the Bible where these giants are mentioned, they are always there to thwart the rise of the Messiah. They are always God's enemies, always the enemies to God's people. So, when God said in Genesis 12, Abraham, it's the land of Canaan that I'm going to give you. Satan knew that the promised seed is going to come through Abraham's seed. What does he do? He sets out to... produce giants that will be there to meet Israel when they get there, his descendants when they get there. He had 400 years to do it. Now Satan had 400 years with which to populate the land of Canaan with giants. Hebron was where Abraham buried his wife and where he himself was buried. Small wonder that Hebron became the epicenter of the giants in Canaan. Do you know what it says about the giants who were in Hebron? It says they were as tall as cedar trees. How tall did cedar trees get? 30 feet. I think that's imagery. I'm not saying they were actually 30 feet. It was probably just, you know, just saying, you know, they remind us of cedar trees. Though they were in reality probably not that big. It doesn't say. Anyway, the land of Bashan on the other side of the Jordan River was also populated with giants. And these giants attacked Israel when Israel tried to enter Canaan. Og, the king of Bashan, had a bed, <coughs> bed six feet wide and 13 and a half feet long. So, before they ever got to Canaan, they had to face giants. Once they got there, they had to face them. They had to face the very worst of them. Can you imagine when Caleb said, give me this mountain? That was where Hebron was. Kirjath Arba, I believe, was the original name. Can you imagine when Caleb went up and knocked on the doors of that city and had giants look down over the wall and said, I'm here to take your city? How small Caleb must have felt. So Satan, so Og, king of Bashan, Christ also had to conquer Bashan when he died. Psalm 22 says so. In fact, the witch of Endor, where Saul went, was in that vicinity. Bashan was a land that was fertile. It was known for two things in the Bible. It was known for demonic activity and lush country that they raised strong cattle in. As David, so Satan tried to use giants to destroy God's promise of a redeemer. As David became God's anointed king to defeat Israel's enemies and to establish a royal line through which the Messiah would come, the first enemy he had to face was Goliath, a giant. That's no coincidence. Again, Satan always used the giants to thwart the rise of the Messiah. Satan knew what David didn't know at this point. He was a type of the Messiah. All right, so he sent this giant out to defeat him. Not going to happen, Satan said. So now let's take a look at David. Who was David? David was from the tribe of Judah. Judah had been promised by God to be the tribe through which a royal bloodline would come. Christ 
from the tribe of Judah. David was a shepherd. A shepherd was despised, at least among the Egyptians, a type of the world. David was a youngest son of Jesse. The youngest son was not the one who was to be the heir. David was unlike Saul in that (coughs) he did not have the outward appearance of one who would make a good king. God had to tell Samuel, don't look on the outward appearance. David was not really respected by his family. Christ's family, brothers turned on him. David was chosen in obscurity. He was not well known. In other words, David was the weakest person God could have chosen in terms of human advantages. David was God's chosen one through whom deliverance was to come. God chose David for two reasons. God chose David precisely because he was weak. God chose David because he exalted God. Have you ever wondered why David's called a man after God's own heart? David's heart and passion more than anything else was that God's name would be exalted. You read that all through the Psalms. Who was Goliath of Gath? Goliath was a descendant of the Anakims. Who were the Anakims? He was a descendant of the giants, the Anakims that Caleb had expelled from Kirjath Arba, Hebron. Coincidence? I don't think so. Goliath was a Philistine. Do you remember how Israel neglected to drive out all the Canaanites? So God said he would no longer drive them all out from the land of promise because he was going to leave them there to test Israel. So Goliath was left to test Israel to see whether Israel was serious about following God or not. You can read about it in Judges chapter 2. In order for Israel to go forward, in order to establish a royal bloodline for the Messiah, in order for David, a type of Christ, to rise to the throne, the first thing that had to happen was he had to be tested. Sound like Christ? The wilderness testing, coming against Satan, the powers of darkness, before he could begin his ministry. He had to be tested with the forces of darkness that were trying to thwart the rise of the Messiah. David had to. Israel had neglected to eradicate the satanic forces that were set there by Satan himself to prevent the promised seed from establishing a kingdom. Before God's choice of a king of a royal bloodline could be established, David had to face off with the powers of darkness that were seeking to prevent this. If David failed in the battle with Goliath, God's promises would not be fulfilled because Israel would be servants to God's enemies. If Jesus failed in his battle with Satan in the wilderness, he would be servant to Satan. I'll give you this if you serve me. No, David didn't realize just how much was at stake, but God orchestrated all this. David, Israel's Messiah with a small M, not capital M, was to conquer the powers of darkness that would set Israel free. He was to break the stranglehold Israel was under since they had refused to drive out all the Canaanites. The battle between David and Goliath was to take place in Shoko. Where's Shoko? Shoko is in the land of Judah. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. Judah was the tribe through whom the royal bloodline was to come. The Philistines... With their giant, the powers of darkness were directly attacking the royal bloodline in this battle. David had just been anointed. God had just showed his favor to David and confirmed that David was his chosen one. Immediately after this, David had to face the powers of darkness alone. A lot of strength was needed to accomplish this. In fact, our title taken from David's prayer says, By strength shall no man prevail. These powers of darkness that are coming against the royal bloodline are not going to be won through human strength. In weakness, David went against him. In weakness, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus went against the powers of darkness. This means they were up against tremendous power, they had to prevail. In a weak enemy, you would hardly use the term prevail. 
to just snuff him out like a little fly. That's not right. It's prevail is just not the right word for crushing a fly with a fly swatter. I prevailed against this fly. It's laughable. In fact, these forces were so strong that they were up against that no human strength was sufficient to prevail. Now let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17 where the battle took place. And we're not going to read the whole thing. But there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines, verse 4, <coughs> named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And he had a helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs and a target of brass between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and one bearing his shield went before him. And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine, and ye servants to Saul? Choose you a man for you, and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then will we be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. This is where you and I are in this story. We are Israel and Saul facing our giants. Greatly afraid. No match for these giants. When They were up against raw power. Verse 15. But David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near morning and evening and presented himself 40 days. While God's people were in the throes of Satan's power here, God was raising up a deliverer from Bethlehem. Just like when Israel... God's people were in the throes of Satan's power. God was raising up a deliverer, Christ, from Bethlehem. God was raising up a deliverer from Bethlehem. He was a lowly, common man. He was a surprise to Israel. They certainly would not have expected a deliverer to come from where David had come from. And 40 days? Who else was tested with forces for 40 days? David, he's preparing himself to overcome David said, what have I now done? Jumping to 29. Is there not a cause? This was no empty battle. There was a lot at stake. The cause of the gospel, the future Messiah was at stake in this battle. Folks, we're fighting a cause for a cause too. Life is no empty, frivolous pursuit of pleasure. For the cause of Christ, we must live or die. And there's a lot more at stake in the battles we face than we think there is. Just like there's a lot more at stake here than David had any idea of or Israel had any idea of. They had no idea how desperately they needed a David. When the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves or sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. David was a weak man. He was despised. He came to this face-off in weakness. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. Herein lay David's strength. In weakness he had to depend on a strength not his own. Verse 46, this day will the Lord Yahweh, all capital letters, deliver thee into mine hand and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and all this assembly shall know. What? That the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Here we see the whole purpose of this battle. David was not the main character here. 
Goliath was not the main character here. Israel was not the main character in this account. The Philistines were not the main character. Saul was not the main character. God was the main character here. God was a hero of this account. God is a hero in every biblical account. That's why we went through 1 Timothy to show you the triumph of God in the gospel. Yes, 2 Timothy. Show you that it was God was the main character, not Timothy, in the things he was charged with. The purpose of this battle, it was said, so that all the earth may know what? Not that the Lord saves, but how he saves through weakness. He said, God's going to deliver you to my heads. So all the earth may know that he doesn't save through sword and spear, human strength, but weakness. By strength shall no man prevail. You want to overcome Satan, it's going to be through weakness and Christ's strength and his alone. So David prevailed over the Philistine with his sling and with his stone and smote the Philistine and slew him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. And so David prevailed over the Philistine, not through strength, but through weakness. And thus the rise of the royal bloodline was launched through weakness. Thus David's ministry to the people of God was established established through weakness. Like I said, folks, we're not David. We are Israel and we are Saul in this battle. We are facing our giants like Israel and like Saul were facing their giants. And if we're going to go up against our giants without a Messiah to do it for us, we're doomed. Like Israel was doomed. We stand no chance. The best of us may be a Saul. Saul stood no chance. He had no power of God on his side. He had no faith. And he was greatly afraid. If you want to know where we belong in here, we don't belong in the position of David facing Goliath. We belong in the position of Israel and Saul facing Goliath. That's how we need to see ourselves. In this account, we are not David facing our giants. We are Israel helpless before our giants. Unless we have a savior, a David, to face our Goliaths, we're doomed. The great, I loved, loved what Brother Greg said the other night about the very sword that was meant to kill David ended up killing the enemy. That was beautiful. Can I take that one step further? The very sword that was meant to destroy Christ, the cross, became the undoing of Satan. That cross that came against Christ was the greatest sword you and I have ever faced. Because if that cross eradicated Christ, we're done. And our salvation is done. The very cross that was meant to destroy Christ, and by extension us, was was the cross that defeated Satan. Goliath, the very sword that was meant to destroy David, and by extension all of Israel, was a sword that, uh, that killed Satan's man, Goliath. So God is triumphant. As the sword of Goliath ended up being the undoing of Goliath, so also the cross of Satan ended up being the undoing of Satan. Or the cross that Satan had used to try to destroy him. We see this weakness in David's life in some of his great battles. David's 600 men were the refuse, the weak of Israel. They became David's mighty men mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 23. Before David could rise to the throne, he had to be tested further. He was weakened to the point that he had no strength left but in God. The king turned against him. His own people, except for a small band of men in the wilderness, turned against him. The other nations turned against him and tried to betray him to Saul. He had to take refuge in a heathen land in order to escape the king who was trying to kill his rival. But the day came when David was to rise to power and defeat the earthly kingdoms that were not of God. The day came when the prince of this world, when Saul, man's best, had to be judged. David was the one through whom God's kingdom would be established. But David had to go through his darkest hour before that could be accomplished. David had to reap reap the results of Israel's sin. David had to be forsaken even by his own 
close-knit friends who had stood with him through everything up to this point. I was told last evening this morning that I cannot forget what I told you yesterday, that when I was at a workshop and I had to say, what is the connection to the gospel in Christ in the account of Saul with the witch of Endor? I wrestled with that for a few days until I realized that Saul and the witch of Endor is part of a bigger story. And you see Christ in David, this bigger story. What I'm going to tell you from now on is what I discovered at that time. <clears throat> the Philistines came and set themselves against David once again, or against Israel once again. David had defeated them in the beginning of his ministry, but there they were once again, just before his rise to the throne. David wanted to go with the Philistines to this war against Israel. The king's advisors <coughs> didn't allow him to do so. Saul was being judged. Saul was going to fall. Saul had to fall before David could rise. Saul fell to the powers of darkness, the Philistines. The witch of Endor lived in the land of Bashan. He fell with her and with the Philistines. Saul, by human strength, was no match for the giants he had to face. As Saul fell, David fell. How did David fall? David fell by reaping the results of Israel's sin. Israel's sin was the Amalekites. Remember how Saul and Israel failed to eradicate the Amalekites, disobeyed God? It was their sin, and there they were left. And it was the Amalekite who ended up finishing Saul off when he fell on his sword. Haman in the book of Esther was an Amalekite. And it was the Amalekites who were the cause of David's fall in his darkest hour just before his rise to the throne. The Amalekites came and carried David's family and the families of all his men captive. And his men turned against him at that hour and wanted to kill him. And he faced his darkest hour. He did that. He faced that not because of his own sin, but because of Israel's sin. The Amalekites. This caused even his closest friends to turn against him. Like Christ's closest friends turned against him in his darkest hour. David was left alone. But we are told that David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Christ was left alone in Gethsemane. David rose from that fall and went on to conquer the enemy, the Amalekites, Israel's sin. David destroyed the Amalekites, took the spoils of war from the Amalekites, and gave these spoils to his own people. He distributed them to all his men. He then rose to the throne, and after some fights with Saul's armies, he had all Israel submit themselves to his reign. And thus David's greatest rise was through his greatest weakness. By strength shall no man prevail. God's throne is established in human weakness. God does so so that his name will be great. Have we seen Christ in this? After all, David was a type of Christ. Let me point out a few more similarities. Before Christ's throne could be established, he also had to face off with the prince of darkness. He had to destroy the giants of Satan that sought to rule the world and thwart God's plan of redemption. Christ was also from a lowly family. Christ had to flee to a foreign land like David did in order to escape the wrath of a king who was threatened with his royalty. Herod sought Christ's life. He had to flee to a foreign land. Egypt, a type of the world, is where he fled. David threat, uh, was sought by a king who was threatened by his royalty. He had to flee to the Philistines, God's enemy, a type of the world. Christ was from Bethlehem. David was from Bethlehem. Christ was God's answer to the sin of mankind, like David was God's answer to the sin of the Amalekites. Christ was belittled by his brothers like David was belittled by his brothers. Christ lived and fought for a cause. He said so in the temple to his parents when he said he must be about his father's business. Is there not a cause? David said, is there not a cause? Christ was baptized, heaven opened, and God confirmed him as his chosen one 
like he confirmed David as his chosen one at the anointing with Samuel. Immediately after this confirmation, at the very beginning of his ministry, Christ had to face off with the powers of darkness that were seeking to destroy him at the outset, like David had to, in the beginning of his ministry, face off with the powers of darkness, Goliath. Christ was in a very weakened state just when he needed strength the most. Christ defeated Satan in the temptations in the wilderness through weakness. Weakened after 40 days of fasting. David defeated Goliath through human weakness. He could have become servant to David, Satan instead of fighting him. Christ could have. Just like Israel could have become servants to the Philistines instead of fighting them. And like David could have become servants to the Philistines instead of fighting Goliath. Christ had to face Satan one more time toward the end of his ministry. Like the Philistines came back again for David, so the devil had only left Jesus for a season. And there on the cross, the Bible tells us, Christ conquered Bashan, the powers of darkness, Psalm 22. Satan had to fall before Christ could ascend to the throne. Like Saul and the Amalekites had to fall before David could ascend to the throne. When Satan fell, Christ fell. Like when Saul fell, David fell. Christ fell because of our sin. David fell because of Israel's sin. They both reaped the results of the sin of their people. Christ's band of men who had stood up with him to this point abandoned him in Gethsemane. Like David's band of men abandoned him, turned on him, and wanted to kill him. Christ was left alone. David was left alone. Christ found strength in God all alone. David comforted himself alone in the Lord his God. The enemy seemed to have the last word with Christ, just like he had the last word with David. But as Christ fell, he also went after the enemy and destroyed them, like David went after the Amalekites and destroyed them, the sin of mankind. Just like David destroyed them, so Christ destroyed them. Christ destroyed them in the weakness of his death. David destroyed them in the weakness of his humanity. Christ took the spoils of war like David took the spoils of war of that battle. We read about it in Ephesians 4 and in Psalm 68. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. He took the spoils of war and distributed these spoils to his people. Ephesians 4. Afterward, he, Christ, rose to the throne like David did And all the nations of the earth are submitting themselves to him and to his rule. Those who have not yet done so will do so in the future. Just like over time, the nations came and submitted themselves to David. And because Jesus submitted to weakness, God gave him a name that is above all names. What was it? Yahweh. You are Yahweh, the Bible brings out. You are Adonai, the king. You are God. That name was given to Christ because he submitted to weakness, to the death of the cross. God also promised David's name would be great through his weakness. He made David, I will make your name great, like the great name of the earth. Christ's name was great through his weakness. David's name became great through his weakness. So he exalted Christ's name above all other names because he submitted himself to weakness. And in 2 Samuel 7, 9, we find God promising to make David's name great. We need Jesus, don't we? Read First and Second Samuel and see how desperately Israel needed a Savior. And put yourself in their shoes and there you'll find where we belong in First and Second Samuel. We don't belong in David's shoes. Yes, we can learn lessons from the life of David from ourselves. But we should ultimately see ourselves as weak, sinful Israel and Saul, unable to do anything to deliver ourselves. And as God raised up the Messiah, David, to save them. So we need a savior. We come facing our giants like Israel came facing their giant and just cower and say, I can't do this, God. God says, all right, let me send you someone who can. And we face our giants 
with our Messiah. May God bless you.